0: Welcome to the wonderful world of wine, exploring all things wine with you. We are your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lenzi, and you can find us on Facebook at the wonderful world of wine. wine, wine, wine. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the wonderful world of wine. How are you doing today, Mark? Hi,
1: Kim. Good to see you again.
0: So one of my favorite topics of conversation, and we go over this one every once in a while, is sparkling wine and champagne and delicious, delicious beverages that have bubbles in them. And one thing that people have been talking a little bit more about lately is about pairing champagne with food. But not only pairing it with food, but sort of taking champagne out of its place as a part of celebrations and kind of making it a little bit more approachable. So that's one thing we wanted to talk about today.
1: Yeah. And, and the bubbly girl, Kim, you, you you have turned me around a lot on thinking about sparkling wine. And, th- and this article had me thinking about food and sparkling. And it really is just a wine that you can have all throughout when you're entertaining. You People come in, you welcome them, you have it with an appetizer, you have it with the main course, and then you finish with it. So it really works with food well.
0: And there are a lot of different types of sparkling wines out there that I think people just don't even think about, oh, well, I could use it in this and I could use it with this. But this is Sort of a, a current trend that we've been seeing is this idea of champagne isn't just for toasts you know you could even have something like a Moscato Dosti which is a sweet and bubbly and have that with dessert that still counts as a sparkling wine so there are all sorts of places that you can put these things so of course the most famous sparkling wine is is champagne and most people use the term champagne to really describe anything with bubbles so when we say sparkling mi- wine that's what we mean you know we mean we mean wine with bubbles but there's even been talk lately about about not using champagne flutes for your champagne but using regular old wine glasses
1: yeah i, I they had mentioned here every two seconds someone's popping a bottle of sparkling wine i so love that that's idea amazing stat. and also the when we talked in the past a lot about people say champagne true champagne can only be from champagne france so a lot of times that's one of the most popular questions we get kim is people asking for a champagne where they really want a sparkling say prosecco or a cava totally different so we don't want to insult the uh champagne region
0: right but it really has come down as sort of the generic term for thing bubbly wine and sort of the, the kleenex of wine as yes. <laughs> so you could say use the term champagne but when you do go into a wine store or you go into a restaurant and you ask for champagne you probably will get that question from knowledgeable people you know, are you looking for champagne with a capital c or are you looking for champagne with a little c and that can mean anything it's anywhere from your five dollar bottle of andre up to the really expensive really good stuff that's that's a couple hundred dollars so there's like i said there's a, a place for that's a place for all of these don't use the good stuff to make mimosas though you know that's where your cava and your prosecco can come in and yeah. we do like to use a lot of these different wines in our classes and in our wine tastings because there are some subtle flavor differences between them but they're um they're fun and they can be different and there's there's a lot
1: of room for them i think yeah there's so many stories behind sparkling wines throughout the world so that's why we love to use them for education so kim why do you say sparkling wines with food what is your like key reason if people ask you?
0: So I think that it's a couple of different things. So the bubbles, for one, make them a really great palate cleanser. And I think that it keeps the meal popping. You know, it keeps it exciting and it it keeps refreshing your palate so that you get to enjoy the food that you have a little bit more because you're constantly kind of having your palate cleansed. But then also because most sparkling wines are relatively high in acidity and acidity is really needed for making a nice wine and food match, again, for that similar reason it sort of cleanses the palate and it just it wakens up your taste buds and also i think that sparkling wine just pairs with a lot of different things uh, especially and this might seem sort of counterintuitive but fried food like bubbly wine and fried food i don't know if it's the greasiness or if it's the saltiness or what but it's it's just fantastic
1: yeah and you mentioned the acidity there's so many different styles of sparkling wine so you can have some that are really low in sugar there's some that have a little bit more sweetness prosecco is, is one that's a little sweeter style so it works with different Foods. I love like the toasty notes of a true champagne or sparkling. Mm. The the toastiness works so well. And you mentioned the fizz. There's something about the bubbles. There's something about celebrating and popping the cork and hearing that celebratory note. Also, I like just like I said earlier, just how it works with everything throughout the meal. And
0: one of the nice things about that true champagne from the champagne region that you just mentioned is the, so the grapes that go into that are generally Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. You know, grape varieties that are really familiar to people, but also where really food friendly. So we've found that a lot of Pinot Noirs can be nice for sipping on their own, but are also really excellent with food and a whole wide variety of things. You know, Pinot is really excellent because it kind of crosses the line between what you would assume to be white wine food and then what you would assume to be red wine food. So like it's my go-to for salmon or tuna, which you would ordinarily think, oh you know that's fish. You don't want to put something white with that, but it doesn't really have to be. So I think because of the structure of the wine and the particular grapes that are going into it, That makes their flavors make them much more compatible with food as
1: well. I agree with that. The seafood thing is excellent pairing, Mm -hmm. and they also mentioned roasted chicken, which I think is a phenomenal matchup.
0: I think everything goes with roasted chicken. I don't think I've ever met a wine that hasn't go gone with a good roast chicken. No heavy reds, (laughs) reds. maybe (laughs) barbecue chicken, yeah, right.
1: (laughs) But then they mentioned our favorite pizza, and Uh this really opened my eyes. Thinking of pizza with a sparkling wine, it really does work.
0: Yeah. Well, again, with that greasy and the salty and the bubbles and the acidity just cut right through and it's it's that refreshing kind of
1: pop. They also mentioned uh, spicy foods and now we always kind of disagree on spice and I, this could go both ways though the, the crispness or the fizz and the fruity could work with this.
0: Yeah, I'm a I'm a fruity slightly sweet wine with spicy food kind of person so no, I, I, that would be...
1: So you're more Prosecco the fruit yeah, with the I spice? Yeah, I
0: kind of I would need to experiment a little bit more with specific ones but I tend to gravitate towards wines that do have a little bit of sweetness to them to go with that spiciness just to balance out the heat you know
1: i think the the fizz or the bubbles in any style just helps with the heat Mm -hmm. as well
0: with that that cleansing uh, that cleansing feeling on your palate and just wiping away all that heat
1: yeah and they they also mentioned one of your good tips you always give with food pairings with something salty potato chips Mm -hmm. popcorn yep i I think that is also a very excellent suggestion have you ever had sparkling wine with potato chips
0: yes i have um i actually just did uh, a little bit ago in my book club. I had brought a champagne to go with potato chips because of a, of a reference that we had read in a, in one of the books that we were reading. So that was sort of fun to do that and to experiment. And I think also because with real champagne, you have those more toasty notes because the wine has sat for a while and aged a little bit. And that really corresponds nicely with the slight slightly earthiness of the potato in the potato chip. So that's pretty cool. But w- one of the things about this article that, that we're referencing here, uh, which was actually in Fortune magazine, sort of interesting that something that is so mainstream is important when it comes to wine and when it comes to people's sort of thinking about wine. And I think that this was fortune because we often think of champagne as something that's expensive and you save it and it's for a special occasion. But they kind of mentioned that people maybe are getting a little bit tired of that concept of it and that this is a way to, to really revitalize the style. So yes, you know, there are people who have plenty of money who are able to spend a bit on a good bottle of champagne, but there's plenty. Of other good stuff that's bubbly out there that that really won't break the bank and it's nice to experiment and nice to know that those wines and styles are out there.
1: You talked about mimosas with sparkling wine. Did did you ever try eggs with with sparkling? Because I see that as one of the when anytime you research a pairing with sparkling wine, you see scrambled eggs. Hmm. Have you ever tried it? I've done quiche. Well, I think similar, I've ever done sparkling. Right? I've never, so eggs, done... eggs work right? Yeah,
0: eggs work. Eggs work. I that was Again for that theory. you know that rich that richness you know, sometimes you don't want a super rich wine to go with a rich food you want again that palate cleansing so i think that that could totally work
1: but how how about going the dessert route i always say not sweeter than the dessert yeah i do too this would be more traditional probably like maybe a fruit or a berry more Mm -hmm. than chocolate cake type of thing right
0: so you can you can kind of match the the flavors so there's a sparkling wine that you've shown a number of times mark called brachetto that is a, a sparkling red wine from italy that's a little bit sweet it's sort of the red version of a moscato and and that really pairs nicely with, again, those fits out. something with berry fruit or something with chocolate. But then if you're going the Moscato route and do something a little bit lighter, but even cheesecake and things like that. I tend to stay away from a lot of wines with sweet food, unless it's a really sweet wine. But but those are a couple of pairings with sparkling wines that I feel like really do work.
1: I love the traditional champagne with has a like a toasty or a nutty note. What would you suggest pairing with traditional champagne that has a real nuttiness to it? it hmm. or toastiness
0: i you know you could go that that route and do something with nuts but with those heavier ones i i tend to go to cheese really it's still yeah.
1: I, I was thinking it still works with salty too yeah. right so
0: well if you got the salty nuts and you put it with the salty cheese that all works together as well but something like might be a little again counterintuitive because it's not very heavy but brie and champagne even a heavier style of champagne is still in the grand scheme of things not super heavy but brie and champagne are really really good together
1: You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We're your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone. If you'd like to find out more information about Kim, please go to her website at vinitaswineworks.com. If you'd like to get more information about myself, please go to franklinliquors.com. And if you'd like to get more information about our show, please go to Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. A very common topic we get all the time is about aged wine. And we found a story in Science ABC that was, does wine really taste better when it's aged? And Kim This is one of the things, the term age. I think is one of the hottest profiles to tell someone about a wine.
0: You mean as far as the description? Yeah, description. Like what it like. it,
1: when you're looking at a tasting note and it says aged, what, what does that mean if you never drink a, a uh, aged wine?
0: Yeah, it's hard to put your finger on it. I mean, I even feel like if you have a lot of experience, it's one of those things that when you smell it and taste it, you can be like aha. Uh-huh. But then trying to describe it, it's a little bit harder. Some of it has to do with oxidation, so the wine coming into contact with oxygen. And again, those flavors are even difficult to explain to people. You know, it's one of those that unless you've experienced it, it's really kind of hard to talk about. But I think for an aged wine, one of the biggest things is that it changes its texture. So I think that that's one of the big things that people are looking for if they're looking for a wine that has some age to it is that it's softer, it's easier to drink, it's a little silkier, it doesn't kind of, I don't know, tear the saliva off of your tongue because it's so young and so sort of aggressive and astringent. So for me, that I more describe it as a, as a textural change than as a flavor change. What yeah, about you?
1: That's a good description. It's just, if you've never tried, and, and often we do an event, we, we'll we put out an aged wine so people can kind of judge or see the difference between a fresh, a uh, new wine and an aged wine. I think that's and, what it
0: comes down to. Is people need the experience of it. It's We can throw words at you all day long about different flavors and different aromas and things like that. But for you to determine whether you like it or don't like it, it really does come down to you tasting it. Because at the end of the day, it's, your own subjective opinion about what, what you like. And you might turn around and not like a wine that has some age on it, which is perfectly
1: acceptable. And it's important to know that it's not bad. It's That's what happens when a wine evolves in the bottle. And a lot of times in the past came, I'll give you the number, they say 90% of the wine that is bought is consumed within two hours. And, <laughs> that's and you crazy. always laugh. Yeah, right? I always laugh. <laughs> but I, it, it really, and they say only 1% of the wine in the world is ageable. Right. So when you look at that 1%, and 90%. It it makes sense, right? Yeah,
0: it does. And that's why we have so many more wines with screw caps, right? Because we don't really have to worry about aging all that wine. It's really meant for, you know, drink it as soon as you need to. I mean, does it, is it going to fall apart in six months or a year? No. But do you want to drink it now? Yes. So go ahead. That's, I think that's one of the freeing things about getting this kind of wine information out there is that people don't feel like that, oh, you know, I need to age my wine because fine wine ages and yada, yada, yada. It's all that. Well, no, it's meant for, it's meant for consumption. It's meant for pre Appreciation and it's meant for enjoyment. So don't, I would tell people, don't worry so much about aging your wines. I have a, um, a rule of thumb that I tend to tell people that if it's a bottle of wine under $20 a bottle, don't even worry for a minute about aging that bottle. Drink it as, as soon as you want. And it's not always tied to price, but I feel like that's a pretty good rule of thumb for people to use.
1: So a good definition is basically a, for an aged wine is something you're buying to sell it. You're not looking to consume it right away. You know you have to lay it down and let some bottle of aging effect take place. Right. Right.
0: And people ask us, okay, well, what wines are meant for aging? So there are a couple of rules to follow. So you want a better wine. So generally tell people like over $25 a bottle from good years, but from places that have a track record of producing wines that do improve with age. And I think that's the big one for people. So places like Napa, California or places like Bordeaux or better bottles of Chianti Classico, those names that are familiar that are maybe a little bit more famous than some other ones. And they really do need to be big reds in order to get better with time. Do you have any favorites that you often recommend that people that people I, put down?
1: Fa- I, I would just say I would recommend something that you know is a really tannic grape or a real heavy grape that needs time. Right, and yeah, so the grape like variety real, comes into play too. Yeah, unless you like that real bitterness right away. And a lot of people do because they figure that's just the style it's supposed to be because they drink it young all the time. But you had mentioned, you, you actually did put a price to ones you would age, right? Because I always see a, A number that everything over thirty dollars, you can can, you can assume it's ageable. Mm -hmm. So, do you think there's ever a lower cost wine that's ageable? I think
0: there is, depending on what the grape variety is. I mean, there are some you know there are some big, heavy tannic things from say Southern Italy that might be on the shelf for fifteen dollars. That certainly could improve with a couple of years. Even some less expensive Bordeaux, like fifteen or twenty, might benefit from maybe a year or two, but not five or ten. When you're talking five or ten years. That's, I think, when you're getting into those higher price points.
1: Yeah, I can see the Italian thing because a lot of times the acidity is very high. Right. And And the grapes will age. Yeah, the
0: acidity, that's a good point. It's not just about the tannins. It's also about the acid. And those things have to be in balance because if they're not in balance when they're younger, then they're not going to be in balance when they're a little bit older. So I like to say that the tannins and the acid sort of form the backbone or the skeletal structure of the wine. And if those things aren't there, it's just going to
1: fall apart and be flabby when it's old. back to the profile, if you poured 10-year-old wine and, and a two-year-old wine, do you think the average wine drinker can tell it's age and it's not just flawed?
0: I think they're going to be able to tell that there is a difference between the two of them, but not necessarily be able to put their finger on what the difference is or, or why that difference is there. But I think if you say, okay, one of these wines is young and fresh, one of these wines is older, what can you tell me about it? Then I think they start to start to put two and two together. You've been listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Mark and Kim. To find out a little bit more information about me, you can find me online at vinitaswineworks.com. And for more information about Mark, please visit him at franklinlickers.com. So here at The Wonderful World of Wine, we do like to follow trends in the wine industry and the wine business. And one thing that we do like to keep an eye on is vintages and how things are shaping up every year in different parts of the world. So one that we've been keeping our eyes on is South Africa and as South Africa is in the southern hemisphere and we are up here in the northern hemisphere, their seasons are reversed from ours. so right now when we talk about the the vintage in South Africa we're talking about the 2018 vintage and they will harvest in spring of 2018 whereas uh, in Europe and in North America we will harvest in the fall of 2018 and they have been suffering through um, a major drought likes of which they haven't seen really in decades and coupled this with some other weather events that happened at the early part of their season, and it's been a really tough year down there in South Africa for wine growing.
1: Yeah, down 50% the harvest this year, which is huge. It's the smallest crop production since 2005, which is pretty amazing stat for that area. And you had mentioned uh, trends, Kim. One of the things I find interesting in retail is that certain regions pop up every now and then, and South Africa hasn't been on the radar. And now this year, where they're having this bad harvest, there's been a lot of retailers or wholesales, I should say, that have been coming in with more South African uh, profiles. That's so interesting. I think it's interesting now that they're in the news to struggle, they're trying to push and restart the, the uh, whole movement of yeah. South African wines.
0: I remember a number of years ago that so many of our value-oriented wines that we had on the shelf were from South Africa. We had reds and whites in sort of the $7, 8 $9, 10 bottle range, which were really solid, good everyday drinking wines, not too too hard to find you know we had good quantity we had good selection and then after a while those just sort of started to go away and then one day we kind of turned around and we were like huh look what happened to our south african section you know we still had some big reds and we still had some higher tiered things but it seemed like the category really started to slow down so that's very interesting for me to hear that there's a little bit more of a push from the wholesalers again because if you're in this business for long enough you do really notice the ups and downs of different wines from different places and different styles and categories and things and this was one that I had definitely been keeping my eye on.
1: And as a wine shopper, when you're in a retail store, you can basically judge how wine is trending by what you're seeing on the shelves. If if you go in one day and you saw only two bottles of South African, then the next week you go and you notice there's a new South African section, you can guarantee there's some trend going mm-hmm. on to to bring that shelf space up.
0: Yeah. And wine production is is a big, important part of their economy. And for so many years, you know, their wine industry was hurt because of apartheid and because so many other countries wouldn't even deal with them, that it, they're sort of a latecomer to the modern wine scene. But they've been really doing some some great things with their own grape varieties, things like Pinotage, which are really only grown down there. They do wonderful things with Chenin Blanc and with Chardonnay for whites. And this is just sort of hard to watch, because not only are these factors with the weather difficult for the, the wines themselves, which are beautiful, but it's really having a major impact on their economy. And that's that's tough to see people go through those things too.
1: And one of the things you mentioned was why I originally started stocking more uh, South Africans wines was they were marketing fair trade. Mm -hmm. So it was almost like you had sustainable. It was another, I don't want to say niche, but it was another trend to sell to promote South Africa that they were promoting fair trade and also the sustainability. I think with New Zealand, they're like 100% sustainable. So they built on my sustainable section. They built on my fair trade section. And you mentioned the grapes and we, Get a lot of feedback about that Pinotage grape. I mean, when we talked to Bob uh, from La Cantina, he was talking about bringing the uh, Pinotage in, and you and I just kind of looked at each other like, "Oh, <laughs> you know, that's interesting," because <laughs> it's not a very popular grape. It's
0: a uniquely flavored grape variety. We'll put it that way. It's it's a it's not a super heavy red. It's kind of medium bodied, but the flavors are not big and fresh and fruity. They're a little more earthy and a little funkier.
1: Yeah, and you you always talk. Uh, you're a famous wine descriptor of, of Bobby Barbie <laughs> Barbie doll <laughs> this is like Band-Aid. If you say Band-Aid, everybody knows what a Band-Aid smells like. It's Band-Aid. Like. It's like
0: freshly tarred road surface, uh, rubber bands. Yeah, There's a lot of crazy stuff going on and there. you with get the that in
1: your mind and someone pours you a South Avenue, and you're like, oh no, right? I'm going to, it's going to be Band-Aid or something bad. So a lot of the reds, I I guess I get turned off on the style. It's not my style, but it uh, seems to be the whites. Like you were saying, Chenin Blanc, Sauvignon Blanc trend a little better than the Reds.
0: yeah i have had some wonderful luck with Shannon blanc from south africa it used to be my kind of go-to inexpensive white like how oh, i need to I need a, an eight dollar bottle of white for either cooking with or to throw in a sangria or just to have something to sip on on a, a random tuesday night and it was totally my place to go to but this change in and i think these impacts on sort of their less expensive side of their industry and this the bulk wine part of their their wine industry has um has hit them hard and then we are are seeing that reflected here by those things just not being available on our shelves anymore.
1: But it's still great, like you say, great value to be sustainable, to be fair trade, and to be seven, nine dollars a bottle. I mean, and I think some profiles are unique. Like I've had Samuel Blanc that instead of a real strong grapefruit note, it's more of a lemon drop type mm-hmm. thing. So mm-hmm. that descriptor alone makes people kind of experiment with it. Yeah,
0: it's very a- appealing to hear. And uh, so it'll be interesting to watch and see what happens happens with what they are able to ex- export to us, how their industry manages to survive this, and to deal with the weather when it comes to wine growing. It is an agricultural product, but it'll be uh, interesting to see how they recover, if they recover, and what they'll be doing going forward.
1: You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine with Mark and Kim. We're exploring all things wine with you. If you'd like to get more information about Kim, please go to her website at vinitaswineworks.com. If you'd like to get more information about myself, please visit franklinliquors.com. And if you'd like to get more information about this show, please go to our Facebook page at The Wonderful World of Wine. Now we're going to talk about what to look for when shopping for a wine cooler. And this was from the Good Men Project. Kim, you have some background. Background story about these people. Yeah,
0: I just like this website. It's very well written, very well curated, and a lot of just good information about how how guys can be, let's say, better men uh, without necessarily bringing women down in the process. It's just, it's, it's really, it's very forward thinking and very, I don't know, it's a good way to put it. You did
1: good. Embracing,
0: (laughs) (laughs) embracing of of being what it means to be a modern man, I suppose, as you could say. But they have really good content too, so I really liked this this article about what to look for when you're shopping for a wine cooler because it makes you ask the questions about what do you need it for before you just go out and buy something like you might not need something that can hold i don't know five cases worth of wine and it takes into account where you're going to put it do you need it to hold red wines and white wines so i think it was really just sort of smart to ask the questions first before you go shopping for a giant wine gadget
1: yeah now let's just explain we're not talking about a little styrofoam cooler no. you but we're you talking like a wine a beer, fridge a wine fridge and this is i see in a lot of houses now when they're building they they have these built-in wine coolers in the kitchen very fancy so is it very common you think that people are getting these wine refrigerators or these special cooling devices i
0: think for some i think for a lot of houses that are new construction that can be part of the plan for in the kitchen i know that i have a number of friends that the, there's a wine cooler that was sort of built into part of the cabinet or part of the counter so yeah i have i feel like i've seen more and more uh people who have they're not huge wine Refrigerators, they could probably hold maybe two cases of wine. But I think at the end of the day, it's about what are you going to be using it for? So, do you want something that will always keep your white wines at a temperature that you can just pop them out and they're ready to drink and they're nice and cool? Or are you looking for something that maybe you don't keep in the kitchen, but maybe you keep someplace else, like in a basement or in a closet, that is more meant for aging and not necessarily for serving? So, I think that's one of the big questions. You know, if you are somebody who likes old. Or reds or you have certain things that you would like to buy and keep and lay down a little bit, then you might be looking for something a little bit different. You're looking for more of a storage device as opposed to, I need something in my kitchen to keep my wines cold and I don't want to mix my ketchup with my wine.
1: One of the big shopping points they put here was the noise levels and they define the two types of wine coolers you can get. Ones that have a refrigerated device in it, like your refrigerator, so it has a cooling device in it. And the other is what they call thermoelectric, which which... which is basically takes the heat away. It doesn't really put in any cooling air. And I guess the way I can explain this easily is I'm a gadget guy, as you know, Kim, and they sell these little countertop wine cooling devices, and it's not a compressor in there or or a Freon or anything. It's just this thermoelectric. So it it creates, it takes away the heat from the bottle, and in effect cools the bottle. So it's two different technologies. I
0: hadn't even thought of the noise factor. I have, when I think of a wine refrigerator and you having something that is dedicated for wine and that is constructed for wine as opposed to a regular mini fridge what I think about is the vibrations Uh, maybe it's because I drink a lot of bubbly wine and I know that if you keep your your champagne and your sparkling wine in a regular refrigerator because the fridge cycles on and it cycles off and you've got those little mini vibrations you're reducing its lifespan and you're actually shaking the bubbles out of the wine so that's what I tend to think about is those vibrations and it's it's sort of the same thing as we had talked before about wine on air Planes and the very subtle shaking and shifting and stuff that goes on on an airplane with a bottle of wine and how that can kind of strip it of its flavor and do some not so good things to it and, and a, a regular refrigerator can do some some similar damage
1: yeah you're thinking exactly right because a regular refrigerator in the compressors that are in here are exactly the same so i mean you've worked retail if you you come into my store all these compressors are running and it just generates a lot of heat and mm-hmm. noise and vibration so these other types of these thermoelectric devices you know not having that compressor kick on and off you're not having that heat generated in your counter you know because these are usually under the counter they're they're enclosed in so you have to think about the design getting one of those is going to heat up so you're generating that and you you are creating the vibration
0: yeah and that's really good to think about so yeah think about where it's going to be how that's going to impact what's going on around it and then what are you going to be using it for
1: really so is this more for would you say these are more for a wine drinker and not a wine collector
0: oh again i think it depends on what you want it for it certainly could be used for a wine collector, but you wouldn't, I think, necessarily keep your collection, say, in your kitchen. So if you're going to be having one of these in your living area, then yeah, it's for, for a wine drinker. Maybe you want to keep your reds at a cooler temperature, but not refrigerated temperature, and then your whites at a drinkable temperature. And then if you are looking for something for storage purposes, then you're going to get a different one and and put that someplace else.
1: I think it's funny. Most of the time I see them in friends' kitchens or relatives' kitchens. They're always empty. You know, there's like one, two bottles. I'm like, why? You have this beautiful device and you don't have it stocked up, right?
0: Or maybe it's full of beer. Thank you for listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We've been your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lenzi. To find more information about our show, please visit us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Cheers. I want wine.